This is our introduction to the book of Revelation, part two. Uh, we really need to do our work before we launch into the book, because it's a different kind of book. Think of the terrible twos. Why do we call them the terrible twos? Well, psychologists and other forms of shrinkdom will tell you, uh, and, and correctly so, that at that stage in development, their brain is trying to figure out what's me and what is not me. So all kinds of separation issues, um, frustration with what me wants is not what you want because we don't catch the concept of you and me being separate individuals. That said, when it comes to the book of Revelation, we can so easily become the terrible twos and think that everything we're reading is about us and it's all the drama in our life and all of the fears in our life and all of the hopes in our life and our, our, our. But these books, these apocalyptic books like Ezekiel and like, uh, to some measure, Zechariah and Daniel and Revelation, they were not written to you. They were written for you. Yes, we can learn a great deal from these, but they were written to the people to whom they were written. And you'll want to know who it was written to and why, because you've got to know the why before you go too far. If you don't, you're going to grab it out of context. And as somebody said, and I've not been able to source it, but I've quoted it often, a text without a context is a pretext. You've got to set it in the world that we don't live in. A world that's so very strange to us that they use numbers different than we do. They use words different than we do. They have whole concepts we don't have and vice versa. We have a lot of concepts that never occurred to them. Think of it, think of it just 20 years ago. We've only had iPhones since 2007. So 20 years ago, if you're watching this uh, and it's not 2027 yet, we haven't even had these phones for 20 years. So go back, go back all the way to those dusty dark years of, oh, I don't know, 1999 and tell somebody, ooh, I, I took a selfie with my phone. See what, nothing happens. Or I took a picture of my, my lunch and Instagrammed it to my friends. And then we met on Snapchat and then I grabbed my phone and I was listening to my playlist and none of these words mean anything in 1999. Or how about go to 1899 and said, you know, I wasn't paying attention the other day as I was traveling downtown and I ran a red light. Ran a red, what in the world? Now flip that. Revelation has all of those things that when they say them means a great deal to them. And we go, um, insects coming from that direction. Okay, maybe Huey helicopters and Israel and Russia. No, no, no. Go back to their world. I don't want to get bogged down in theories about the book and I'm in a squeaky chair. So uh, this, this is uh, live for me, recorded for you. Uh, I'm not going to get bogged down on the theories and how to read it. First of all, let's just get ready to look at the messages to the seven churches of Asia. We won't really get there much today, but we got to get ready for it. Now, the good news is the messages to the churches in Asia are comparatively very plain language messages. But again, it refers to situations, mottos, 
city pride, all of these things, even the production that was best known in that city. So we're going to have to do some work and not be a terrible two and think it's all about us. Is that fair? Well, I haven't heard you say no yet. So here we go. This book is a form of a pastoral letter in the first few chapters. And chapter one, same setup, introduction, mission statement that Paul would do in his letters. And whatever meaning you read into the rest of this book <clears throat> needs to be examined in the light of, would this be of any use or any comfort to Christians who have survived Nero and Caligula, or at least the Christians who have survived, and are about to meet Domitian, or Domitian, according to what teacher I had as to how it's pronounced. In fact, this book has the current horrific world of Domitian written all over it. The Jews and Christians had barely survived up to this point. They had been, yeah, you're okay, no, you must be killed. It was just a roller coaster of the most horrendous heights and lows. Now Domitian comes, and he is evil personified. And this is something we can learn from this. These people had gone from one to the other. On this planet, sometimes you don't get a rest. Sometimes you don't get a break. Sometimes you go from cancer in you to death of a child, to loss of a job, to car wreck of a mother, who now and you don't get a break. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. He plainly loves these people, but he's telling them, get your armor on. It's not going away, and it's going to get worse, but God will win in the end. So, this book is a polemic, a written harangue attack. It's a polemic against Rome, but it's far more than that. This book has two hard lessons for us to learn, and I'm really going to ask you, especially today, I'm recording this actually on Election Day uh, in November of 2020. And um, you know, lines are everywhere, and we already know that at the end of the day, there are going to be other ballots coming in, and both sides are going to be yelling and screaming. Sometimes you don't get a break. But when politics, politics, politics comes, you need to know the two lessons of Revelation. And this is not going to be easy. Especially, well, it's just not going to be the first. This entire book is a call to Christians to never compromise with the state. Ever. Never confuse the state with the church. Never ally the church and the state. Now forget the church-state arguments you've heard. That's not what I'm talking about here. We don't look for a savior out of Washington, D.C., out of London, out of Paris, we, uh, Myanmar. We don't, we don't look for a... We don't look for government to help our Christianity survive and prosper because government isn't in the business of doing this. Yes, some governments are much better than others. And I have personal preferences about who I'd like to have as president, but it has nothing to do with my religion. And if you disagree with me vehemently, but you still believe that Jesus is the Christ, we're going to get along fine because Christ is the king. We are never to compromise anything with that. Anything you put, if it's a Jesus and religion, you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to do this. Watch out. 
and if it's a Jesus and vote this way and these are the, the, the issues that should matter most to you, run. If it's Jesus and, Jesus is not your king. He's merely one of your counselors. This is an anti-assimilationist book. Now, some of the words I'm going to use, and, and there are going to be a ton of scriptures that I'm going to refer to but not read because it just doesn't work in this setting. We are working on getting a soundstage to where we can do PowerPoint right beside me and all of that other. But for now, what I'm going to do is just give you my notes. Uh, I'm going to start today by putting them in the, com in the description of the video. So you'll have those. This is this book of Revelation is anti-assimilationist, anti-accommodationalist. It is a book of resistance literature. We're not to link our arms and we're not to ally ourselves or allow the state to get its nose in the tent. This is offensive to all Christians on the right and the left because all Christians right and left try to pull the state into their side to get their way well, to get their way, and it's wrong. We are Christians. We are our own nation. You can be involved politically, just like you can also get involved in landscape architecture, but God is God, and he runs the show. This is a call also, this book, to roam into any government that would raise itself up against God. It's a theopolitical book. A book stating that God is king, God is the emperor, and God is the only true ruler. It's in that sense that this book is prophetic. It is a call to live, underline this in your brain, please, a first commandment life. We have no other gods before God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. That word shall, it's an imperative. Uh, we're losing it in the English language because we don't understand imperatives and, and the need for it. So we'll say you will have no other gods and we think that means the same as you shall have. No, shall is an imperative. It means this will not be done. I will not accept this. So instead of saying, Thou, um, you know, you will not commit adultery. He goes, you shall not commit adultery. In other words, adultery is not who we are and it's not what we do. It will not happen here. I mean, God's God and he's very serious about this God business. And he says, you shall have no other gods before me. And there's an echo there of what God said to Job in Job 38 when he comes out of the cloud and he goes, who's talking? Who is clouding and making things harder? by saying words without wisdom. And God calls them together and says, now you will listen. He is God. I often tell you that there are only two facts in the universe. Number one, there is a God. Number two, you're not him. And I truly believe those are the biggest facts in the universe. Maybe in an election year when we're fraught with worry, uh, viruses, riots, and fears, Maybe I should add a third fact. No person, no system, no political party can save you. They cannot be your king, and you are expressly forbidden by God to compromise your loyalty to Jesus Christ. 
in order to support any other agenda, any other person, party, or thing. Period. Maintain your integrity as a Christian. Do not trade your integrity away as a Christian to people because people make promises to you. What a terrible deal that would be. That's an Esau-level eating the pottage, whatever that was, and trading away his entire inheritance. That's that level of mistake. Don't do it. Time travel time. We got to go back. Imagine you live in a time of Domitian. You would pass by the equivalent of billboards every day that said, Caesar is Lord, using the very phrasing and words that we use for Jesus is Lord. He put himself up as savior of the people. Your coins would have stamped on them, Caesar is Lord. You would be considered dangerous if you did not join in with the chant. You are a danger to the community. You're disloyal. You're not patriotic. You're an atheist. They would call you an atheist because you didn't believe in their gods. Didn't matter you believed in one God. They would just, you know, you believe in that God, but you're an atheist where it counts to them. If you did not chant this at sports uh, rituals, at signing of contracts, at any public gathering, there was the required uh, statement of allegiance to Caesar and the declaration that he was Lord, he was Lord of all. And in fact, if you were to say, Jesus is Lord. That's an act of treason and rebellion. All of these public meetings, could a Christian just go along, you know, not really meaning it, like the old doctrine of mental reservation? Um, by the way, before you look that up, when you look that up, there are some anti-Catholic sites that make it sound like that's official doctrine of the Catholic Church. Never was. It was a theological exercise saying, under certain conditions, it's probably not sinful to say something that isn't true. For example, if you had Anne Frank in the attic and the Nazis come and you, they said, do you know where any Jews are? And you said, no, mental reservation, you know, inside your heart, God would overlook that. I happen to think God, God's love covers a multitude of sins and I don't need a doctrine of mental reservation. But does that mean then I can go to a sports arena and before they play or do anything, I can yell, Caesar is Lord, because that makes me feel, you know, makes everybody else not kill me. Or um, say it when I sign a document and instead of sincerely, Caesar is Lord, Pater. Can I do that? Can Christians just go along with it? If you buy meat in the market, if you learn a trade, and if you're very, very, very fortunate, you can join a trade union. Those are called guilds. You'll hear papers moving here. I don't know how sensitive this mic is. Um, all occupations in Rome were protected occupations, which means you have to have certain qualifications and have to be with the right people and have to have the right guidance to get the stamp of approval to be in this job. It's very much like a, a closed union shop except with full government backing, and backing of the state to the point of they could banish you. More rarely, they could kill you. Very commonly, they could take you away from your family, and then your family's in slavery because you just won't say the words. Now, think about that. 
it's one thing for me to say, well, I'm, I'm not bending any to any of these guys. But what if you're watching your four-year-old cry themselves to sleep with hunger? And they're dying. And you know, it's just a few words. Just a few words. That's the world they lived in and the world which is about to come at them. All events had pagan elements. John, the writer of Revelation, understood all of that. And he mentions a Christian martyr, Antipas, in chapter 2, verse 13. Christians were martyred already and more were to come. Now, got to... Um, try to wrap this up in the next five or ten minutes because I never want any of these to go over 25 if I can help it. When I go live on the sound stage, it might go a bit longer because it'll look more like a church service rather than my upstairs room, which we have for now. Uh, things are in flux. We know that. Rome was not evil because it persecuted the church. Don't, that didn't help matters at all. It was evil because it usurped the loyalty due to Jesus Christ. It called itself a God. It called itself a savior. It called itself Lord. Christians are to live as aliens on the planet. I got in big trouble saying this recently. Um, and I've had people call me everything from a radical to a communist. And oh yeah, I've been called a far right something as well. I don't remember what that was. Because it doesn't fit in people's system for you to say just what the Bible says. Uh, for example, in, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Um, uh, do, 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 do. Is that where I want to go? Chapter 2, verse 11. I'm checking over here. First Peter. I knew it didn't look right. You see what happens. You get old. You start making mistakes. Probably don't know where the car is. Don't even know where the cat is. Do we have a cat? No, we don't have a cat. So... It's hard to know where the cat is when you don't have a cat. Moving to 1 Peter 2, 11. My pages are getting stuck. This is such an old Bible. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. But his, his whole thing about living righteous lives, he said the whole basis of it is we don't live here. We are foreigners. We're exiles. We're from somewhere else and that somewhere else is where we're from it's who we are and it's where we're going Isn't that fun oh that's fun you got that's fun and then in philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 and i'm not going to do this with many scriptures today because uh, we are working toward making this a lot easier than watching me struggle getting my hands to open up a page um philippians 3 20 is um just one of those wonderful reminders our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there the lord jesus christ did you know that when paul wrote that he was writing resistance literature anti-assimilationist anti-accommodationist he was urging us into a theopolitical system where god is god we are first commandment christians god is god and this book calls us and every generation since that book, to worship the one true God. In fact, Revelation is a book of worship. And worship is not just songs and sermons. I can remember when I was a little boy, I'll take time for a quick, uh, quick illustration. When I was uh, a little boy, my dad loved Appalachia. And so we moved everywhere, but we were always back in Appalachia for a little bit. You know, it, it might've been a trip, it might've been a year, it might've been two. 
Frankly, it's all a blur. Um, there's a reason why my email is called Traveling Mead, and because it just, we never had roots, we just kept going. But he loved Appalachia. And back in the day, the, all the Churches of Christ would get together and sing on maybe one Sunday afternoon a month. And they would sing for a couple of hours. Somebody would go up and put numbers on the board when people shouted them out. Uh, we were all excited. It was the only time that women could say anything back in those little churches. And no heating, uh, I'm sorry, no air conditioning in those things. And they'd be just roasting, just like an oven, like you're on a broiler there. And you're sitting on these hard pews. I'm a, I'm, I'm a boy now. Mom's on one side, dad's on the other. I can barely see over the pew. We're singing songs about sheaves and getting dipped in blood and very frightening things. And staring straight you know, right in front of me, right there in my eye scan, are funeral fans. Kids, you've missed funeral fans, and I'm glad you did. Without air conditioning, they had this like popsicle stick and then staple a picture on it, a square picture of Jesus knocking on a door or something. And it was an advertisement for a funeral home. And so you just kind of move there, trying to get um, some air moving. They're singing songs. It seems like it's, oh, oh and I'm, on, I'm in a, um, a jacket and a tie because God can't hear you unless you are attired properly. So I'm just, oh my goodness, just dying. And somewhere through, I don't know, hour 23, whatever it was, my mom leaned over to my dad, you know, right there and said, oh, Bill, don't you think this is what heaven's going to be like? And my immediate thought was, oh, no. Are there options? Um, well, heaven is not going to be like that. There are going to be songs, and there are going to be a lot of shouts and a lot of joy, I'm sure. The Bible specifically mentions songs and instruments and all that sort of thing. So, going to be up there. But worship is not always about songs. It's not always about sermons. Worship is orientation, and worship is direction and faith in the storm. Worship is pointing yourself toward God when you can't see him. Worship is pointing yourself toward God when it feels he has left the room. Worship is pointing yourself toward God when you are dying and you don't know why. Worship is pointing yourself to the Lord when everything has gone sideways and you're trying to go, what? but still standing, kneeling, or falling in the right direction. Remember, Jesus said, blessed are those who ask, seek, and knock. He never said anything about we had to know the answer, find the way, and get in the door. He just said, just be pointing the right direction. So, in the, the notes for this, the description for this video, um, there are a ton of scriptures and what I did when I did this live a couple months ago is I just had the PowerPoint going and I read powerfully and hard each verse right after the other, no break. And it almost took the air out of the room because, wow, this book is just saturated. Like you put it into a bowl of worship. It's everywhere. It is not a book about the terrors yet to come upon America and Britain and this. It is about the world. And how to live as a stranger in it when you can't see God? How do you believe he's working in the dark? We need to be aligned with the runway before we can land this plane. We need to get our hearts and minds and heads right before we plunge into this book. 
We worship God for creation. We worship him for his reign. We worship him for salvation. We worship him for justice and for mercy and Christ's death and resurrection and for the coming reign of Jesus Christ in heaven. Neither Caesar nor any earthly politician, celebrity, despot, sports star, none of them are king of kings, lord of lords. None of them are the first and the last. Only God is God. Get lined up and we can start the book.